Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. I'm Gail Eichenthal of KUSC, delighted to be sitting down with the president and CEO of Los Angeles Opera, Christopher Kelch, to talk about an amazing upcoming season, 2019-2020. Uh, how did you put it together? What's the overall philosophy? Well, it's a delight to be with you always, Gail. So thank you very much for having me. Um, there are a couple of uh, central ideas, the greatest of which, of course, is variety. It's almost impossible for us to be encyclopedic in our survey of this wonderful art form in any one season. So we, we uh, seek to be uh, emblematic of it. Um, and we keep a couple of uh, key principles in mind. We want to be able to offer illuminating uh, productions of the unquestioned masterpieces in the canon. Uh, we want to be able to keep expanding the idea of what actually is canonical by offering illuminating productions of repertory that people may not know as well as those uh, core masterpieces. And then I think we consider it to be uh, of equal importance to make sure that we're invested in uh, the artists who will forge the future of the art form. So that kind of chain of stewardship is really important to us. Um, you always want to span as many languages as possible. We have four uh, represented in our 1920 season. And I think you want to span um, a representation of the art form at its best. And so we're really uh, proud of the fact that we're spanning about 240 years of music in next season. Um, all the way from um, Handel and through Matthew O'Coin. Matthew O'Coin, you're quite young and remarkable artist in residence. Yeah, we're very proud of, of our association with Matthew. As many of you know, he was declared by the MacArthur Foundation to be an official genius now. Um, so we're quite proud of his association with us and of his work for us. Uh, we're actually extending his residency for a fourth year um, to encompass his activities in our 1920 season. We'll get to what we're going to hear of his uh, in, in a bit. I wanted to start with your first production of the year, the incredibly lovable La Boheme, but in this case, a new production. Indeed, uh, we are offering our first new production of La Boheme in 25 years. Um, one of the pleasures of my job is that I get to see a lot of productions of a lot of repertory, and I've seen a lot of Bohemes over the last 25 years. And I've often found, uh, if you'll indulge the institutional pride a little bit, that ours was nearly perfect. So the decision um, to replace it is one that we take very seriously. So in this case, uh, we are very, very pleased to be able to collaborate with Barry Kosky, uh, a director that I believe is one of the finest working um, in the operatic genre today. Um, you know, Barry's work is so grounded in uh, very clear musicology that his interpretations are always novel and fresh, but also have incredible fidelity to the nature of the story. So we're really pleased um, to be able to do that. This production will premiere at Barry's company, the Comische Opera, uh, actually this week, this coming week, will be the premiere of the production um, and will be seen uh, first in Los Angeles in September. And this is the brilliant Australian director who brought us Magic Flute, and will bring it to us again, uh, the Dido and Aeneas and Bluebird's Castle that I'm sure our listeners will remember. And uh, interestingly, just last year, he became the first Jewish director at the Bayreuth Festival. So an incredibly wide-ranging repertoire. It's been interesting to watch Barry's career because we've admired him. We're, in fact, strangely, to my mind, the only American opera company to be working um, with Barry. And, um, you know, he's turned the Komische Opera into, I would argue, the most important or one of the most important opera houses in Europe today with his wide-ranging um, repertory and the, the kind of atmosphere that he's created. It's become one of the most important um, uh, theaters in, in uh, Germany, certainly. 
very exciting to see this new production of Bohème. Tell us about who will be singing this sublime music. First and foremost, uh, the production will be conducted by our music director, James Conlon. This is the first time in his 13 years with the company that he will have ever led this masterpiece, so that's quite exciting for him and for us, particularly in the fact that it's a new production and opening uh, this season for us. Uh, he'll be leading through their paces uh, in her debut with us, Marina Costa Jackson, a fast-rising um, young soprano, a very beautiful, very communicative artist who will be singing the role of Mimi. Uh, Simir Pirgu will be returning to us. Uh, he last appeared with us in Lucita Lamamore as her uh, doomed paramour, uh, Rodolfo. I guess she's the doomed one, but their love affair certainly is doomed. Uh, one of the things that we're most proud of at the company is the incredible growth and trajectory of the Domingo Kolbernstein Young Artists. And I think audiences look forward to um, both discovering new talents through their program, but also welcoming um, back artists whose growth that they observed over their time at the company. So we're really pleased that we have two alumni um, coming back in two key roles. Um, so Nicholas Brownlee will be returning to us um, as Coline, and Kihun Yoon will be returning to us as Marcello. Um, and they will be joined by Erica Petricelli, a current member of the program in the pivotal role of Musetta. I just happened to hear her uh, about two weeks ago when she was competing at the Metropolitan Opera Western Region, and she came very close to picking out the whole thing uh, at a young age. What an incredible voice. Yeah, I th I, one of the things that's important to communicate um, about the program is that it's not just about the voice, because there's a lot of people with wonderful um, technique in the world. Um, but Erica, to me, is an embodiment of uh, what we are looking for in the program to attract and then refine, which is the idea of an artist who is beautifully communicative, open emotionally, and able to convey that in a very large room. And Erica um, is one of those artists who is able to kind of channel and then hyperbolize and project um, that emotion. So um, that'll be a wonderful journey for audiences to trace her on in, a, in a, uh, that pivotal role of, of Musetto, which goes through such a... Um, uh, emotional roller coaster over the course of that evening. A name I think will be very familiar to opera audiences everywhere within a few years. Indeed. Tell us a little more about the production. So as I said the production has yet to premiere but the central idea is that Barry is returning to the source text that um, inspired Puccini, so uh, the Mugere novel so I think that what audiences will see on stage is maybe a little bit more kind of photoreal and a little bit more gritty um, than the romanticism of, of most uh, Bohem productions. Um, and the scenic environment is based on daguerreotypes, which of course were a, a photographic technology that were developed concurrent with the premiere of Bohem. Um, one thing I'm really looking forward to is the uh, Café Mamoose scene. Um, we'll have a kind of hallucinatory um, aspect it is kind of a wild fantasy of a bohemian artist's um, idea of what success as an artist might um, constitute. And so I think it'll have a kind of um, fantastical surrealist edge that will, again, uh, reinvigorate uh, this most familiar and most beloved of tales. That's September 14th, opening night to October 6th, a new production of La Boheme, directed by Barry Kosky. Later in October, something we haven't seen before at L.A. Opera, for sure, and that is the majestically beautiful Light in the Piazza, a musical by Adam Gattel and Craig Lucas, featuring one of the great artists of the century. The one and only Renee Fleming. This is extremely exciting for us. I mean, this is repertory that we don't normally traffic in, but um, 
as many listeners may know because they're familiar with the piece, that when it premiered on Broadway in 2005, it was heralded as being a unique piece of literature on the Broadway stage because it was a, um, a countermanding act to the... Uh, inf- uh, there was all of this kind of pop and rock music that had kind of um, uh, colonized the the Broadway stage. Um, And Adam Gettle um, kind of restored this neo-romantic, nearly classical, very operatic um, sense of composition to the Broadway stage um, in a way that was very uh, arresting for people and very exciting. So it feels like the piece lives as naturally on the operatic stage as it might live on the Broadway stage even as it's composed to be amplified. Um, but it is a full orchestra. In this case, um, conducted in her house debut by a woman named Kimberly Grigsby, who we're very, very uh, happy um, to welcome to the company. The headline here, of course, um, is Renee Fleming. This is a project that was created for her um, to be directed by uh, Daniel Evans, a very um, acclaimed stage director in London. He is the artistic director of the Chichester Festival. This project will premiere in London in June in a a full commercial run there before making its U.S. debut with us um, in Los Angeles just six months later. Phenomenal. Uh, I like to quote Frank Rich, a former theater critic of the New York Times, who called Light in the Piazza the most intensely romantic score of any musical since West Side Story. And I heartily agree with that, having seen the original Lincoln Center production and it almost makes me tear up just to think about it. Um, so cannot recommend this highly enough, even if it didn't have Renee Fleming, but it does. And there's a, a wonderful uh, offer that you're making to subscribers. Indeed, this is if you're a full subscriber to next season, uh, we add Light in the Piazza free. And so while it is technically off subscription um, as a uh, tribute to a subscriber's loyalty, you'll get that production uh, for free. Um, And I agree with you. I I think it's one of the most moving uh, pieces of music. And I think uh, I really believe in context. And so I I love the recontextualization of this piece as being uh, legitimate for the operatic stage. I think people will be uh, quite surprised by it for people who aren't familiar with it. Um, One of my favorite projects from the past couple of years were these uh, semi-stage performances we did of uh, Andre Previn's Streetcar New Desire with Renee Fleming. And I think that showed a whole new, um, more vulnerable side of this artist who we know and love so well. And that kind of sense of um, intimacy that was created with, with Renee, um, I still get goosebumps thinking about that. So the idea of bringing her back for a similar kind of projects, which will show another side of her artistic personality is really exciting to me. I think it was the New York Times uh, in reviewing her in Streetcar said, it was one of the greatest dramatic performances that he's ever seen, not even counting the singing. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I think there was just a level of kind of um, vulnerability and a lack of vanity um, in that performance that was quite quite arresting. And we know that um, since those performances, uh, Renee has gone on, of course, to now star on Broadway twice: one in a straight play, and and once, of course, in Carousel. And you know, I think that audiences have noticed over the years that we're interested in long-term relationships with artists and watching the development of those long of those uh, artists over time. I mentioned it with reference to the young artists, but it happens all the time um, with us, with conductors, with principal artists, with stage directors, someone like Barry Kosky that we have a relationship with. I find that very interesting to watch the evolution of that artist, and certainly Renee is amongst, as you say, the greatest artists of the century, and to see this other side of her is um, quite gratifying as an audience member. It'll be quite quite a thrill. This next production will sell out so fast that I want to make sure that our listeners know about it in advance, and that is you're bringing back the Barry Kosky Magic Flute, and that's coming up in mid-November.
Yeah, what's extraordinary about this production is that you know we were the second company in the world to produce it after the Komish Opera, and now it has been seen in 28 theaters across the world. I mean, in some ways, it's become the definitive production of Magic Flute for an entire generation. And to your point about it selling out, I mean, it, it is reliably um, a wonderful entry point um, for audiences into the world of opera because it is so visually astonishing. And the fact that we pr provide a first-rate um, musical reading of the piece, um, of course, is just, in this case, icing on the cake. So these performances will be co-led, uh, the first four performances by our music director, James Conlon, and the uh, last two by our resident conductor, um, our, the wonderful Grant Gershon. Uh, one of his favorite pieces of repertory, by the way, is Light in the Piazza. So he was disappointed that um, schedules did not allow him to lead those performances, so he shares your affection for that piece. Um, a wonderful uh, series of uh, surprises and debuts in the cast here. Um, a young tenor named Bogdan Volkov. Um, I heard Bogdan um, sing performances uh, of Eugene Onegin in Aix-en-Provence last summer. Maybe you heard those as well. An astonishing um, young tenor. Um, he's sung a few small roles at the Met, but this will be the first uh, large assignment in America. He's a major, major discovery, um, as is our Pamina, uh, Zuzana Makova, uh, another wonderful singer making her U.S. debut with us um, in those performances. Um, again, I feel like maybe this podcast is just a, a series of um, declarations of institutional narcissism, but I think the company um, has a wonderful history of introducing audiences uh, to singers who go on to extraordinary careers um, following their debuts with us. We, we really like that sense of um, discovery. Um, another member of our Young Artist Program, Joshua Weaker, who will at that point be an alumni, will be singing the final two performances of Tamino. Um, in a wonderful casting coup, Ildebrando D'Arcangelo will be making his role debut with us um, as Zarastro, while uh, Theo Hoffman, now an alumni of the Young Artist Program, will be singing the role of uh, Papageno, while another um, beloved alumni, So Young Park, who made such a strong impression the last time um, she sang Queen of the Night for us, now four years ago, but of course has come back um, for wonderful performances in Abduction from the Seraglio, in Akhenaten and Satyagraha will also be returning for that signature role of Queen of the Night, one of the uh, most difficult roles in the repertory. Uh, she's making her role debut um, at the Met uh, this very month in that role as well. That's exciting for her and for us. Absolutely amazing artist. And of course, growing, I'm sure, since four years ago, as fabulous as she sounded then. For those who haven't seen the Barry Kosky Magic Flute, it's a multimedia experience with hand-drawn, amazingly charming and delightful animation. And the singers, the live singers, interact with the animation in ways that are mind-boggling. And I would imagine it's very challenging for the conductor to keep everything straight. Not that it isn't normally challenging for a conductor. It, it is. I mean, the secret, frankly, is that the cues of each animation um, section are long enough to be able to accommodate wildly different tempi um, in the pit. Um, you know, when you talk about 28 different theaters have, have produced this work, it would be next to impossible to imagine that a conductor not working on a click track would be able to keep up with the animation. So they built this ingenious system, which does not require that the conductor uh, do so, but there's a kind of, um, there's an amazing actual amount of leeway Within the, within the projection um, queue, and they're all kind of layered. So from the audience's point of view, it's totally seamless, but it also means that the, the operatic experience is, again, entirely um, dependent upon the reading and leadership of, of the conductor, which is, frankly, as it should be. The, the larger challenge really is for the cast because the, they are interacting with animation that they, are, they can't themselves see. So the rehearsal process is really that of a, almost like a choreographer setting a work upon a dancer. Um, there's an incredible amount of precision that is required and concentration that's required on the part of the singers. Um, and it's another factor that you need to keep in mind when um, assembling a cast to make sure that you're um, working with artists who are interested in that kind of discipline. Um, 
I often say that you know singing a full-length operatic role is is nothing short of superhuman. So in this project, we've added you know another uh, set of challenges um, before them, and so that's you know, that that can be um, a bit of a Sisyphean task. But actually, they that positive feedback loop that you get from an audience um, when they respond to the production is very gratifying um, for singers. And so actually, we we have always had. Um, incredibly positive feedback from the cast about the about the project. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an extra layer of, of challenge in, in just the, the way you move around physically. But as you mentioned, um, an incredible introduction to the art form for kids and for adults who perhaps haven't yet fallen under the spell of opera. This will grab them. Yeah, you know, Barry found these two wonderful artists, Suzanne Andrade, who's um, the co-director of the production, and Paul Barrett, who's the person who, who hand draw, draws all the animation. And they had been doing um, a couple of small projects, um, mostly seen in the Edinburgh Fringe. And there was something so specific about that visual language that uh, Barry felt was a kind of must in the operatic stage. I mean, it's, it's, it's always sort of surprising to people because the set itself is a very small and simple piece of technology. Um, and there's no lighting designer. All of the light comes from the projections itself. In a, in a way, on paper, it looks very simple, but it has all of the kind of um, both visual and emotional grandeur that you're looking for when you go to an opera. Um, as you might imagine, I've seen it dozens of times, and it, it, it never ceases to charm. And that, you know, giving credit where credit is due, most of that is to Mozart, who wrote one of the most <laughs> astonishing scores. Um, in history, and there's a, there's a reason why it has stood the test of time. But I think Barry and Suzanne and Paul have, have created this way of, um, again, as I said at the beginning, it's really important to the LA Opera to find um, collaborative artists who, who find a new way in to even the most familiar piece of music so that um, there's a sense of discovery even if you are, even if you've heard Magic Flute a thousand times. That, that you have a, a kind of the thrill of the new. Um, and certainly I think that, that uh, this production of Magic Flute fits that bill. Absolutely. And then comes a world premiere by uh, the artist in residence we've been talking about a little earlier, Matthew O'Coyne. We're very excited about this. As you say, it's the culminating event of our four-year residency um, with Matthew O'Coin. This, while this is our third uh, co-production with the Metropolitan Opera, it is our first ever co-commission um, with them. So we're excited to be collaborating um, with our colleagues at the Met for this project. Uh, this is an adaptation of uh, Sarah Rule's play of the same name. And Matthew and Sarah have been collaborating on the libretto um, for this project, which has been in development now for uh, even longer um, than the period of Matthew's residency. What we're excited about is it takes something very familiar to people, the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, and kind of turns it on its head and refocuses the narrative on Eurydice, her plight, her emotional journey, her escape, her return, her relationship um, with him. It is very uh, focused on this character that has kind of been obfuscated to us, you know, her emotional journey. Matthew has written a, a series of pieces um, based on the Orphic myth. He was interested in exploring this further. I mean, this is a subject that has fascinated composers for hundreds of years. And Matthew wanted to turn his attention to this idea, um, but through a very different lens. And so he came to this extant text, Sarah's play, in a beautiful, uh, I would say this was by design, but frankly it was by coincidence, but it's a very happy coincidence indeed. Uh, the production will be directed by Mary Zimmerman. Uh, Mary's production of Metamorphosis, her exploration of all, all of these Greek myths, was in fact one of the inspirations that led Sarah to write the play in the first place. Sarah uh, saw the play when she was a teenager in Chicago 
and it had a kind of profound influence on her, planted a seed for her. She wrote the play, and now there's this beautiful kind of coming together of these three artists to explore this together. You know, I mentioned before that Matthew is a, uh, has been declared a MacArthur uh, Fellow, a, uh, a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. Um, that's an honorific that was also bestowed upon both Sarah and Mary. So if you're, if you're looking to gild the lily, you could do no better than having three uh, officially declared uh, geniuses uh, working on the same project. So we're, we're uh, very, very excited about this. Obviously, we really believe in uh, Matthew's compositional voice, and we're really, really thrilled to welcome both Sarah and Mary into the company for the first time. Genius cubed. Indeed. Almost scary. Yeah. Well, it sounds amazing. Um, who plays Eurydice? So we've assembled a, a, a wonderful cast uh, for the project. Um, we're very thrilled to welcome back Danielle Denise um, to the company. Uh, Danielle made her professional debut with the LA Opera at the age of 14 um, uh, in a, a project for education and community engagement um, programs and amazingly has not appeared on the main stage um, since. So we're thrilled to have her back to the company. Um, the piece is hardly a dramatic monologue, but it, uh, so much of it rests on her shoulders. Um, so she she is the the principal character and uh, and the principal focus. In this case, Orpheus is a supporting role, um, and will be sung in a house debut by Joshua Hopkins. Orpheus has a double in this composition. Um, there's his earthbound self, and then there's his um, self that is inspired by his muse um, Eurydice. In that moment of inspiration, the role is sung by a countertenor. So we're pleased to welcome back John Holliday, who made such a big impression on our audiences in that wonderful Dido and Aeneas. Uh, John is coming back. Uh, Rod Gilfrey, a wonderful friend of the company. Uh, we're about to do a big project with um, Rod and David Lang at the Theatre at the Ace Hotel um, later this month. Rod has been on, on our stage from the moment of inception, because of course he was the herald in that production of Otello, and he's sung 46 roles with us over the last 33 years. So to welcome him back onto the main stage in, in this pivotal emotional role of Eurydice's father um, is really a thrill to us. Um, and Barry Banks is returning to the company. Um, he was uh, with us uh, for a lot of the interpretive music we were doing with James. He'll be singing the role of Hades. And Matthew will be conducting um, his own work. One of the other things we're very, very, very pleased about is that um, for the fourth time in the company's history, uh, we are launching a countywide festival um, in dialogue with something that we're doing on the main stage. Of course, we had one in, in um, 2010 with the Ring Festival, in 2014 in the Britain Centenary. We also did one around the uh, Figaro trilogy with um, the debut or the, the house debut of The Ghosts of Versailles. So in this case, we're doing uh, one around the world premiere of Eurydice. Um, the festival will be called Eurydice Found. Um, and we're partnering with wonderful organizations around town, um, including the Huntington Library, uh, the Getty Villa, um, the Hammer Museum is a hub of activity for us. And again, we're kind of extracting themes from the opera and super concentrating on them um, in a festival setting. So heavily concentrating on a female perspective on Greek myth and in support of uh, women's explorations of, of these ideas and themes. So we're quite excited about that. Um, one highlight for me is that we're going to do a, a live stage reading of Sarah's original play at the Getty Villa. And again, as someone who really likes context, there's something quite wonderful about being able to really understand uh, the adaptation of the play into the opera, because of course they are, they are wildly different um, forms. I, I often think that the one of the most important, if you're going to adapt an extant text into opera, um, it's one of the most difficult things you can do because if something is successful within its own genre, what is the purpose of transforming it into another genre? You, you In a way, you have to explode it and then put it back together in a way that justifies uh, the work of adaptation. So that's been a really interesting process to go through with Matthew and Sarah. And I think one that has um, been a real surprise, a gratifying surprise for Sarah. And it certainly pulled Matthew in a different direction than I think that um, he was expecting. Uh, we've done two full workshops uh, of the piece so far, and there's just a, 
Um, there's a kind of sparkling wit and lightness um, that this play has brought out in Matthew's composition, which I think will be a um, surprise for people. Sounds incredible. Can't wait. I should note that this is actually our first world premiere on the main stage since 2010. So the last time we had one was Daniel Catan's Il Postino. And while we've had um, enormous success with world premieres and West Coast premieres and our off-grand series, um, we haven't had as much work on the main stage. So that's also, I think, a testament to uh, our belief in, in the piece and in Matthew. Turning back to Donizetti, February 22nd, you present the first performance of Roberto Devereux. Indeed, this is a company premiere for us. And why Balcanto, we seek to make it part of every season. This is the first work of Balcanto that we've done since 2015's Norma. Various priorities uh, took place um, since then, and so we're pleased to return to this kind of home note. The headline here, of course, is that uh, Placido Domingo will be making a role debut in the role of Nottingham. Uh, I may have my math wrong, but I think I'm correct. This will be his 154th role at that point, which is um, nothing short of gobsmacking. Well, isn't it, it's got to be unprecedented. We believe that it's unprecedented. And, you know, I, I, think, I think the term sui generis was invented to describe Placido <laughs> solely because there, there's no one like him and there's never been anyone like him with that kind of endless intellectual and musicological curiosity and generosity of spirit. I mean, these are extraordinarily rare qualities. One of the pleasures of working alongside him to curate for the company is this idea of kind of following his muse because that curiosity has taken the company to so many interesting places and has exposed audiences to so much repertory they wouldn't otherwise have been exposed to. Um, you know, we think about rep kind of coming in waves, and that, that really is based on individual artists who audiences believe in championing certain works. So this piece has been long associated with Sandra Rabinowski because she was kind of a, a, a champion of that role of Elizabeth for so long. Um, she has sadly now retired the role, but it's been interesting to see that these the, the Tudor Queen operas of Donizetti have come back into the fore in a way that would have seemed inconceivable even even 10 years ago. So uh, we consider this a, a wonderful gift. Uh, we'll welcome back Stephen Lawless um, as stage director, another artist who's had an association with the company that goes back um, really to its inception. Um, this is a production he created for uh, the Dallas Opera that's also been seen in Toronto and was a big success for the San Francisco Opera earlier this season. Another really, really thrilling house debut um, from the fast-rising Korean conductor Yun Sun Kim. Uh, Yun Sun was just appointed a principal guest conductor at Houston Grand Opera, and she's done so much work on podiums across Europe. Um, it's going to be wonderful to have her perspective um, on the podium as well. And then a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful cast, including uh, Ramon Vargas in the title role. Ramon had been absent from our stage for 20 years uh, before he came blazing back <laughs> earlier this season in Don Carlo. We'll have a house uh, debut from uh, Davinia Rodriguez, also making a role debut in the role of Elisabetta, uh, one of the most challenging roles in the repertory, both musically and dramatically. And then wonderfully, Alice Coote is returning uh, to the company in the role of Sarah. Um, we haven't seen Alice here since uh, Rosen Cavalier, which was, I believe, in 2004, so it's been some time. And certainly she's an artist that I have almost boundless uh, admiration for. So. All in all, that's, that's really a thrill. And again, if the overall idea of the season is kind of the new, the novel, the undiscovered, this is yet another example because it's a, it's a company premiere, as I said. And music that's not that well known, actually. But so, so ravishingly gorgeous. And such a passionate piece. Yeah, indeed. How wonderful to be bringing back Pelias, 
and Melisande after quite a long period away from the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion stage. Indeed. So the, la the last time we did Peleus and Melisande was, um, was the same season in which we premiered that, that new Herb Ross production of La Boheme. So it's been uh, 25 years that this masterpiece has been away from our stage. It's one of James Conlon's um, most beloved pieces for all of the obvious um, reasons. I will cop to my own long love affair with this piece. I often say it's, a, it's akin to the more that you seek to understand it, the more it recedes from your grasp, which makes it one of the more gratifying quests that one can make with the repertory is that its mysteries just keep deepening, um, which is more and more ensorcelling for you as a, as a listener and as a viewer. And um, I have very much uh, fallen under its spell. So we have David McVicker as director. Indeed, and this, uh, which will come as a surprise to people, I think this is uh, Sir David's debut with the company as, as director. I think many people who, who follow opera think of him as the natural heir apparent to Jean-Pierre Ponel, um, someone with a kind of ravishing um, pictorial uh, approach to repertory that the storytelling is always really, really clear, really, really sumptuous. But the personum regie, the, the psychological portrait of the individuals is always really finely hewned and acute, and so it's not just pretty. So I can think of no better stage director for something like Pelias, um, which, as we say, is a, such a mysterious work. He's based the production on the work of a, um, a Danish painter, uh, Wilhelm Hammershoi, very, very evocative but not so mysterious as to be totally unclear to an audience. Um, I suspect that for many people, this will be their uh, first exposure to the piece because we do it so infrequently. We're completely thrilled to have it back um, and thrilled to have assembled such a wonderful cast. Kate Lindsay as Melisande. Yeah, so Kate, Kate of course, has a long relationship um, with the company. She was last with us um, as such a beautiful Niklaus and Muse in Hoffman, uh, an artist of uncommon um, depth. Um, I think Melisande is one of the most difficult roles in the repertory to sing, um, never mind to embody the kind of inherent contradictions of the character. So she's someone that I um, am I'm looking forward uh, to that portrayal very much. And uh, the Pelias of Yunpeng Wang. So Yungpeng is uh, making his house debut uh, with us, with those performances. He was one of the winners of Operalia um, for Placido two uh, seasons ago. So this will be a, a wonderful discovery for people. What a gorgeous voice. Another um, difficult role to essay because it sits in a funny um, area between kind of high baritone and low tenor and, and presents a kind of unique set of challenges uh, in the tessitura for a singer, and his voice is uh, kind of uniquely suited to that. He'll be joined um, in another um, house uh, debut by Christopher Purvis um, in the role of Galode. He made his uh, debut in that role at Glyndebourne um, last summer. And in another casting coup, we have Sir Willard White returning to the company. 
Sir Willard actually hasn't been with us uh, for 25 years. He was last with us singing in that role of Gulod in uh, Pelias uh, way back in the day, but he's actually returning to us um, as Arkel in these performances, so we're thrilled to have him back. The sheer beauty of uh, the repertoire this coming season <laughs> is staggering. Uh, we now move on to Marriage of Figaro, and uh, always a very welcome and magical experience. James Gray, director. The American uh, film director, James Gray, a wonderful kind of naturalist, he made a wonderful movie called uh, The Immigrant, which contained opera within. He made an epic film called The Lost City of Z. He's just finishing up a, um, uh, this sounds sort of pejorative, but uh, a wonderfully abstract Kubrickian movie called Odd Astra um, with Tommy Lee Jones and Brad Pitt um, that will be out uh, this spring. A longtime opera fan, um, but a debutante in terms of uh, directing. So this is a brand new production of The Manager Figaro uh, for us. It's a co-production with Champs-Élysées in Paris. We now have uh, three other partner organizations, so uh, by the time it comes to Los Angeles, it will have also uh, been seen in Nancy. He has uh, wonderful uh, collaborators, um, including Santa Lacosto, Perhaps the greatest living scenic designer, uh, his designs were seen on uh, our stage for Jenny Skiki. Just a level of evocative detail that is rare indeed in this age of scenic minimalism and such a joy to work with and has his own set of incredible dramaturgical insights that he brings to scenic design so it's not just background. Um, he's a real collaborator um, with James and kind of bringing this world together. And they are joined um, by the uh, famous uh, couturier, Christian Lacroix, doing the costumes. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I kind of pinch myself about this project because it's long been in the pipeline, but was a little bit of a pipe dream along the way. And so we're really thrilled to be able to work on it. And we're also playing with some um, fun scenic elements, which will bring large pieces of the action in greater proximity to the audience than they're used to. I referenced earlier the, the intimacy that was created in that production of Streetcar Named Desire with Renee. There is something in our house that happens both acoustically and theatrically when people break um, that fourth wall, the proscenium, and just stepping outside of that area creates an incredible sense of intimacy with the um, between performer and audience, and we're really looking forward to kind of breaking that barrier down. Uh, the orchestra will actually play at above what we call Mozart height, so the orchestra will be in, in full view of the audience for the entirety of the, of the evening. And again, that, that, that kind of visual sense of the prominence of uh, what I consider to be perhaps the greatest score ever written. Um, certainly the greatest act of opera ever written in my mind is the second act of The Marriage of Figaro. So I'm, I'm particularly excited about, about this project, as is our music director, James Conlon, uh, leading these performances of, uh, of the Marriage of Figaro and our second Mozart uh, opera of the, of the season. We have assembled a wonderful uh, cast. Craig Koklaw, who made such a, a strong impression on audiences in the Hansel and Gretel earlier this winter, uh, will be singing uh, Figaro. Ying Feng will be making her house debut um, in the role of Susanna. Uh, Guan Chun Yu, who is actually uh, with us now uh, for performances of Clemenza de Tita, will be singing Countess. And Christopher Maltman, who was such a memorable uh, Beaumarchais in The Ghosts of Versailles, is coming back uh, to sing uh, The Count for us. Rehab Chaib, who's a woman, also an, a winner of Operalia, um, two years back, will be making her uh, house debut with us in the role of uh, Carabino. Thrilled, 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 thrilled. And you take, you take those seven projects together, and um, six of those operas are totally new to Los Angeles audiences. So even for people that have been with us for the last 33 years, um, there's a real sense, I think, of uh, wonder and discovery about the season. The Off Grand series uh, has seemed to be getting richer and richer with each passing year. Obviously a big success to be introducing 
contemporary works, in some cases very experimental and rather daring works, down the block? Yeah, so uh, off-grand encompasses all kinds of, of repertory. So sometimes we're doing, as we will next year, Baroque repertory as part of off-grand. But next year, to my astonishment, Tempest Fugit, uh, we're in the eighth year of that project, and we're extremely proud of it. Um, we've mounted 26 individual projects um, under that moniker over the past eight years. And within that are kind of come some astonishing statistics, 14 world premieres, um, seven West Coast premieres, four works um, by female composers, four works by non-white composers. It's become a, an engine of growth, I would say, for the company, both artistic growth, audience growth. About 50% of the audiences that are coming to that work are totally new to the company. And um, younger, surely. Uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that they were younger. And, um, I mean, if you'll forgive me, I feel like this is a little bit of fool's errand, is to just chase youth. I mean, the LA Opera, and I in particular, are interested in expanding the sphere of seduction of opera as far as we can. And I'm not so worried about the demographic of, of those individuals. You know, the thing I like about the 50% number is it means that there isn't a self-identified, self-selecting group that is moving as a block from project to project, um, but it means there's a constant kind of uh, turnover of people who are maybe discovering opera and LA opera for the first time. So that's wonderful on the audience side and on the artistic side, you know, it, it, it really, you know, I talk about that core principle of, of needing to be engaged with the next generation of stewards of the art form. It's, it's really giving individuals who are the next Matthew O'Coins, the next Mozarts, the next Debussy's, um, big shoes to fill, but they need to be filled. It's giving them an opportunity to have their work heard. So very, very, very pleased. Um, we have four uh, projects uh, next year under the off-grand banner. Uh, the first of which, funnily enough, is a way of, um, we're always interested in asserting a, a commonality between the creative capitals of, of Los Angeles. So uh, one of the benefits of our project at the theater at the Ace Hotel has been this kind of dialogue with our cinematic past. So uh, we're, we'll have uh, six performances of Hitchcock's Psycho with that iconic uh, Bernard Herrmann score uh, played by the LA Opera Orchestra under the baton of our uh, young artist, uh, Louis Loriseb. That's the fifth year of that project, and it feels like a beautiful kind of cherry on the on the Sunday of, of that uh, particular round. It concludes with Halloween, of course. Indeed, that that it is it is timed it is timed for Halloween, as have the previous four projects. Although, as I mentioned before, we're doing this project with David Lang in February, um, which is both not timed uh, for Halloween and breaks. Um, that kind of format, because it's, it's not a cinematic experience, it's a proper opera experience at the theater at uh, that time. You have a West Coast premiere coming May 1st to 3rd uh, by winner of the 2017 Pulitzer Prize, an amazing, uh, very versatile composer, multi-instrumentalist, singer, performance artist named Du Yun. Tell us about Angel's Bone. So Angel's Bone is our, our collaborative venture with Beth Morrison Projects. Uh, that collaboration, of course, uh, goes back now. Uh, at that point, we'll have gone back eight years because it was one of the founding relationships of Off Grand. We are returning to the Broad stage for the third time. That's our third Off Grand project um, over the last eight years uh, at the Broad stage. This is a slightly larger project than the ones that we do at Red Cat, which is why you know uh, we move theaters. One of the huge benefits of Off Grand to me is that the company can be extremely flexible about the kinds of, of, of spaces that we use, and they are very specifically curated um, to suit uh, the work. In this case, Angel's Bone is quite a large work, 
It has a classical component. It has a kind of pop rock um, component. It features two opera singers, but then also a a more traditional kind of pop rock singer. And is, is another one of these wonderful projects um, with Beth, which really pushes sonically at the barriers of what opera is and what it what it can be. Um, some of our most cutting edge experimental work has been um, through this wonderful collaboration with Beth. And really hats off to her because um, she's created this wonderful pipeline for us to be able to access um, wonderful artists like uh, Du Yun. You know, in her work, I, I don't know how it would have otherwise been heard in an operatic stage were, were, were not for this kind of um, midwifing um, role that, that Beth plays, which has been so uh, critical at, at um, really creating a, a new generation of composers. So we're, we're really excited about, about that. I think with the off-grand project, and again, as you say, in all of these very different locations, you feel opera being reinvented in, in many different ways as you go through the seasons of seeing these productions. So it's a really thrilling experience beyond musically, but just almost intellectually. Yeah, what I, what I love about this is that it, it allows both the institution and the audience to kind of hold the reins a little bit uh, more loosely. I feel like when I started in opera, there was a sense that if there was a a badly performed or a um, or a dramatically wrong-headed interpretation of of a something like Bohème, that somehow you were imperiling uh, both the art form at large and the piece in particular. And I think, you know, I I think you need to be quite um, serious about the ways in which you mount these works. But I also think that. Um, Traditions sometimes can be a little bit of a stranglehold and that, you know, we think about these works only live in performance. We're stewards of a tradition, but the tradition doesn't exist solely in recording because we are 50% theater and 50% music. So you can have a wonderful experience of an opera just listening to it, but you have an incomplete experience of it. Um, you need to feel these, the works in performance. And in doing so, to my mind, people, people have gotten a little bit more I don't want to say relaxed and open-minded because that actually sounds like I'm making a value judgment. I just mean that that people are willing and excited, uh, willing to explore and excited by the prospect of what opera will be in 10 years and 20 years. Um, and I would certainly say that Angelinos in particular have an expectation that you're engaged in this question and that institutions uh, would be conspicuous by their absence from the engagement in, in that in that question. I would say I, I credit Esapeka with this um, a lot of, of really changing the expectations of, of the audience to crave an engagement with both the canon and the future canon. And that, you know, this audience in particular seems really interested in the kind of um, creative tension between those two poles. And I consider the musical life in Los Angeles to be far richer for that, for that dialogue. It took a lot of tenacity on his part to stay with it because, boy, at first, audiences were not flocking to modern music at what was then the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion for the L.A. Phil. And uh, by the time Disney Hall opened, he had been so well-established, and people started following him as if he was a shepherd. But look, I mean, look at the landscape of, I mean, even, even just the main line classical music entities in the city, everyone is engaged in commissioning uh, new work, which, you know, to your point, would have been completely unthinkable and I think is very exciting. And that is not to say, I think sometimes there's a, there's a false um, binary which is created by that, which is that we can only do the new, but the, you know, the most interesting programs for me are the ones that, you know, I think if the first half is Monteverdi and the second half is Glass, you know, that's it's, it's pretty illuminating to draw a direct line between the two. And so I'm certainly, I'm very grateful to him for that. And it, it's been exciting for the LA Opera to find a way to engage with this on a regular basis because they're, you know, it's, it's impractical for us to be able to uh, be able to commission work for the main stage year after year after year. But this is a, this is a um, way of us doing it in a, to a robust degree that I would have thought was unthinkable. 
incredibly creative way of making that happen. And as you say, uh, it's the canon and it's also the new. And May 8th, just a week later, after Angel's Bone comes Handel's Bertolinda. Indeed. So uh, this is a company premiere for us. Again, in that debate of, of balancing a season between periods and language, um, we have been neglectful of Baroque repertory for, for many years, for many reasons. But I was extremely gratified uh, by the response to the Gluck Orfei uh, last season. And it kind of lit a fire under us to figure out a way to be able to make Baroque repertory a more regular part of the program. So we've forged this agreement um, with the English Concert, uh, one of the premier period instrument orchestras in the world today, uh, working under their music director, Harry Bickett, who of course has been a guest conductor for us for many years, to do these uh, full-length operas in concert. This is something they've been doing for many years at Carnegie Hall. It's one of the most successful events in every Carnegie season. And if you've ever had the privilege of being there, it's kind of... Um, I would imagine it's it's like going to a share concert. I mean, it's a it's kind of a bedlam. <laughs> it's extremely exciting, first class orchestra, fantastic conductor, and then he assembles these really really wonderful casts. Um, in this case, we'll have Anthony Roth Costanzo coming back to the company, and Brandon Sedell and Yeston Davies, um, one of the premier countertenors working in the world today, in this in this wonderful uh, concert performance. I think I said something maybe pejorative about just listening to an opera, but there is something very clarifying about just listening to an opera. Uh, we've been doing these wonderful runouts um, to both the Segerstrom Center um, and to the Musco um, Center of the Performing Arts at Chapman, mostly Verdi, but in the middle of a run here at the Chandler, we do a concert performance. And those have really been revelatory to me because your your uh, powers of concentration are, are um, super directed in a way that challenges your sense of what the piece is. And because everyone's in the same room, you think about, I think about an opera orchestra being in the pit and the chorus sometimes being on stage. There's something about having everyone in the same room. Um, it's a fantastic shot in the arm and it's a wonderful morale boost uh, for the orchestra and chorus to be able to hear each other in the same room at the same time and realize just how wonderful they, they are because um, that's not, strangely enough, that's not a kind of uh, experience they, they normally have. Um, it's a very diffuse and manjip experience when they're actually performing in the pit. So uh, I'm really looking forward to it. In the times in which we've done this before in the Chandler, including, for me, uh, infamous performances of uh, the Schoenberg, Moses, and Aaron, people come with their scores and people are quite serious about it. And um, it's, it's a wonderful experience. And again, most important uh, to us, is the idea that it's just another uh, side of the repertory that is irregularly presented here that we'd be able to highlight. So we're very much looking forward to that. Those of us who saw your gorgeous production of Tamerlano with Plaza de Domingo uh, will be so thrilled to hear more Handel opera, not as well known and absolutely sublime music, beautifully written for the voice. Yeah, I think, I think it's, I mean, uh, <laughs> He has many to choose from, but to my mind, this is one of Handel's um, unalloyed masterpieces. It's a wonderful, wonderful piece of music. There's a recital coming right up in October, uh, shortly after the beginning of the season. Uh, tell us about Javier Camarena. So Javier, of course, uh, a bel canto specialist. Uh, he made his house debut with us last season in uh, The Pearl Fishers one of the most acclaimed uh, tenors working in the world today. So we're excited to have an evening of immersion in his particular art. You know, Javier uh, made headlines because he was allowed uh, to take encores at the Metropolitan Opera. This actually landed him on the front page of the New York Times. Um, there had been a house ban on, on encores, and he was afforded... We're talking about uh, during a, produ a stage production. Indeed. Which is pretty outrageous. Yes. But it used to happen in the day, right? It used to happen on a regular basis, but there was a house rule against it, which was lifted for him, um, once in Fida Regiment and once in Barber of Seville. I think that speaks volumes about the, the power and charisma of the singer, so we're, we're very excited to be able to spend an entire evening in his company. 
Well, you've described uh, a season of such richness and variety, just dazzling singers and, and really exciting new productions in many cases. Um, how do you get people who may not be regular opera goers to stop scrolling through their feed and maybe eschew binge-watching their favorite suspense TV show and just get out and hear live opera? It's interesting, right? Although all of those platforms have been designed for maximum engagement and therefore addiction, you know, every news article and headline I read is about a backlash against that. And actually, you know, we collectively feel a sense of a social isolation and um, unhappiness that comes from delving more and more into those kind of uh, virtual worlds, experiences that are mitigated through the screen. And again, it, uh, that makes it sound like I'm making a, a judgment. I mean, these, these devices and um, these forms of interaction were designed specifically to maximize engagement. So I'm not making a judgment on anyone. But I do know that we um, are collectively, societally thinking about um, the harm that is done to us by that. So I think about, you know, when I think about opera, I think about kind of primal human urges. And there is a there is a prime directive in humans towards communal experience. You know, we, we talk about opera being a kind of uh, access to beauty, access to arts, access to reflections on humanity as being a kind of basic human right. So if you combine all that together, I can think of no better kind of respite um, for a likes-addled mind than to come into the temple of an opera house and have a kind of communal experience with your fellow human beings about a shared experience as opposed to a mitigated experience. I think it's very, very powerful. And I think that we collectively would do well to carve out the space and time necessary for that um, reflection. I think that we are uh, collectively better off for it. And again, it's not as if I don't fall uh, down the rabbit hole myself, but I do know that I feel better about uh, the project of being a human if I'm standing in front of a wonderful painting or I'm hearing a sublime piece of music, and particularly if I'm doing so in a communal experience with, with other human beings. So that all sounds very heady. I mean, I often wonder uh, or worry sometimes that we can talk about opera in a way that makes it feel very... Um, intense and very precious. And I think the wonderful thing about opera is that you can have that kind of very intense experience or you can have a very light experience and, and both are possible in the same room. And so there's lots, there's a range of experiences you can have. Um, and it's also a pursuit which rewards recidivism. So, you know, uh, this is somewhat facetious, but you know, you can go to a terrible film and your conclusion is, I don't. Uh, you would never say I don't like filmed entertainment, or I don't like movies, or I don't like storytelling. Um, but people can come to the opera house, not ours, of course. But you can come to another opera house and have a bad experience. And their conclusion is that's not, that's an art form not for me. I would argue you need to find your entry point. For some people, that's uh, our wonderful production of uh, the Magic Flute. For some people, it's go to Damarung. Um, it's very likely that there's a piece of repertory that will kind of flip your switch, at which point there's a, a, a lifetime of rewards that come from pursuing that because there are so many wonderful pieces of the repertory. I mean, I'm amazed, you know, 25 years in, how much repertory I've yet to hear live. And that I find that really, really um, exciting. You know, maybe for people, uh, it's Light in the Piazza, which again is kind of one of those hybrid pieces which combines kind of... Um, uh, melodies that will be more familiar than than say Apelios and Melisande, but I'm I'm quick not to make a judgment because certainly, I I was converted by Handel's Xerxes, so there there's many different um, entry points, and I think it's one of the wonderful things about the company is through our education and community engagement programs, through off grand, through the main stage operas, there's so many different points of access that uh, people can feel welcome to break up with Facebook for a night and, and start dating Mozart. <laughs> well, one caveat is that opera, live opera, is also addicting. And you really, uh, as you say, I love that way you put it about recidivism. Uh, as you become familiar with repertory, 
you want to gobble more of it up. You want to hear other singers do it. You want to see the next new production. How can we possibly reinvent Bohem, but Barry Kosky is going to do it to start the season. Yeah, and, and as addictions uh, go, yeah. it seems pretty healthy to me. You get more vitamin D by leaving the house anyway. <laughs> Thank you so much, Thank you so much, Gail. What a joy. What a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.